Um, and so what, what we're going to learn, probably just, just in this chapter alone, I would say, uh, is that God's plan, when we look at this, is a plan that can frustrate and cut short people's own plans. Um, there is a, a, a narrative in this, there is a, an account in this, which uh, I would, it's not a spoiler, if you've read it, then you know what happens. Uh, I'm telling you now that God uses the devil to accomplish his plans. And I'll go much more into detail into what that means. But suffice to say, that even as, say, as powerful as the devil is, to some degree, limited degree, God can still make those things happen that are for his plan and for his purpose. And that's what we're going to look at today. And it's just quite amazing. But there is a reflection here on us in that we also can get frustrated, probably a God, and we do that as Christians, certainly, but non-Christians can get frustrated um, even though they may claim not to believe in him uh, and yet still argue the point. Um, but we're going to see in these verses that there is a great comfort in knowing that what we see in the actions of this world around us, um, whether they be good or bad, God is never out of control. He's never out of control of his actions or out of control of his creation. We're also going to learn that a false religion is not only in reference to something that's not in the Bible, that it might not always be clear-cut what people believe, uh, is strictly a false uh, religion. We might all see, I think, that we can be deceived uh, by the enemy sometimes into thinking we believe something about the Bible and then we kind of go off on a little tangent. And we need to be careful uh, that this is also false religion. We can go off and be led into religion it's not it's not always a very obvious thing that happens to us and it can happen to Christians as well if we don't stay glued to the word false religion can slowly be embraced over many years uh, as Christians uh, it can start with an acceptance of a seemingly minor thing that may not seem specifically or obviously wrong but what starts out as a slight deviation in the end can have us curating and having faith in an alternative gospel. So when we start to just slowly adjust those little things that we see in the Bible and say, well, I sort of believe this different thing about it, that might seem small and insignificant, but the risk is once you start there, you can end up in a very off, completely off the path place in terms of the gospel. And we'll see that kind of in these verses today as well. The language here, I need to warn you, is intense. Uh, the language in description of the woman, I, I've held back on, on a particular word because I don't think, I don't need to use that word here, but we will look at a, a quite a strong definition of what Babylon is in these verses. And it is quite strong. So it's not always the obvious false teaching or false religions that we need to look out for, but instead be on guard for small compromises and where they may take us. Okay, so as we introduce this, these verses, uh, John is shown a vision which symbolizes two additional judgments which are spread out over the tribulation. This chapter, if you haven't read the previous ones or been up with the ones we've been doing, 
this is kind of this is kind of going back over some of the stuff we've already been through. So it, it kind of describes stuff that happens in mid-tribulation, at the beginning of tribulation, and at the end of tribulation. Last week, we kind of came to the end of the tribulation. But now we kind of jump back a little bit to describe where Babylon sits in this and what role it's playing in the world. And Babylon is a kind of representation of the rest of the world. It's worship of a false god, a false religion, that is completely sold out to uh, this false god, as it were. Chapter 17 focuses on the ruin of religious Babylon, an ungodly spiritual system, as it's known, uh, which is at first supported and then ruined by the efforts of the beast. Uh, chapter 18, uh, when we go on next, next week, will describe the fall of Babylon, uh, both in a sort of political and economic sense. Uh, this chapter, however, begins with uh, one of the angels who poured out a judgment bowl, as we saw last week, calling, to see, calling John to see what is described uh, in the original language as gr a great prostitute. So it's someone so sold out to the, the beast uh, that they themselves have persuaded the people to follow it. And, and all sorts of, it, it's probably the chapter where you get the most extreme visual imagery uh, in Revelation. And, and I'll describe it to you as we go and what it all means. Uh, the figure is another of the commonly known symbols of Revelation. And what follows is a vision specifically meant to be symbolic, not literal, uh, but, the, but what it describes and the activity of people is real, is what will happen. So let's have a look at Revelation 17, uh, verses 1 to 8. And it says, one of the seven angels, uh, you can see, just making sure it's working, one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman who was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls she held, a golden cup in her hand filled with a bonnable. Yes, yeah, those things, terrible things. And the filth of her adulteries. Uh, normally that, that's that word I can do. Uh, the name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the, the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations yes, of the earth. Not yes to that, by the way. Yes, I said the word, uh, just so we're clear. Uh, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. That's Revelation 17, verses 1 to 8. Let's explain this part. He, uh, let me just take some water. He introduces the scene in verse 1, 1 and 2 by describing a certain woman who calls, he calls a harlot who sits on many waters. Now, the harlot is a symbolic representation of the great city of Babylon. 
and its rule over the kings of the earth. Previously, God permitted Babylon to conquer Israel, but he also promised to eventually punish Babylon uh, for their cruel, cruelty against Israel. And we saw this, you can see this in Jeremiah 51, verse 24, before your eyes I will repay Babylon and all who live in Babylonia for all the wrong they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. The harlot here in these verses is used to represent and describe the spiritual state of Babylon. So by now, everyone's kind of just sold out. Most people who are not Christian have completely sold out to this uh, false religion, this false spiritual uh, religion, as it were. More specifically, it is a false religious relationship that people have with the world that we will see and have seen in these verses. The people, as we see, are represented here as the waters, as it says. So uh, the waters are the people. And it says the harlot is sitting on the waters. So basically the harlot is sitting on top of humanity. So we can know for sure, just by understanding, just by reading this, that this is not a literal thing that will happen, but it's a very spiritual thing that will happen to people. So there's like a rule, as it were, over people. And they're, 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 just, they're, just, they're loving what this harlot is doing for them. Uh, that it's giving them power. It's giving them uh, self-worship. It, it makes them love themselves. And ultimately, it means that they worship that thing, that thing that's given them the power. The imagery shows that the woman is ruling over them and the people are under this deception of false religion. It says they fornicate with the harlot in the sense that they use uh, their own uh, user for their own pleasure and become partners with her, become drunk under satanic power, and that this harlot gives them. So it's going to be it's going to be incredibly obvious by this stage, uh, as we're reading here, that there's going to be a, a big gulf between people who worship the living God and people who are let's say worshiping uh, this this spiritual downfall, as it were, this, this drunkenness of power and hell. Uh, there's going to be a chasm, a huge chasm, between those Christians and those who don't believe. Again, very different to what we're seeing today. There's always a middle ground. There's always people wandering between whether they believe there's a God or not. Actually, we'll see the world move more towards worshipping themselves and actually, in turn, worshipping the beast, worshipping sin and power uh, for themselves. What we, what we will see are leaders being empowered by using false religion to become rich, as well as have power over people they rule. You see, this false religion isn't even another religion. But it's a false religion that stimulates in people a desire to act on and act out on the sinful desires of our hearts. But what it also serves to do is to blind people to Christ. If, if, if this, um, let's say the beast, because the beast is actually in control and owns this harlot as well, owns this prostitute. If he's willing to do everything to make us feel good about what we achieve and what we do and how great we are, that's really attractive to people that haven't heard about Christ. If there's a, a false religion, a false message being given, that if you can have whatever you want at whatever time you like, that's tempting. That is enticing as a message. 
This beast, the Antichrist, is being ridden by the woman, which shows the woman as the uh, antithesis of Christ, the complete opposite to Christianity. But the woman is actually subservient to the beast. We know that from last week, the beast is the devil, and we know that he is ultimately the one who wants all the power. She serves him. And so this kind of this picture of her on the back of the beast, as it were, is not that she owns him or is, is in control of that. She, he is the one who owns what she does. Satan, the beast, has, is, being used, is using the woman uh, in false religion to subdue and control the world. But now they are united as one which helps to understand how in these particular times the world religion will all be focused on one man in the Antichrist. It will be the worst of all false religions. It won't have a bit of this or a bit of that. It won't talk about there's a God somewhere. It will be entirely worldly at its core. It will be entirely rotten at its core, full of self-worship, and self-idolatry. Uh, we see this uh, shown in Daniel 11, <coughs> excuse me, Daniel 11, 36 to 38. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by, by women nor will he regard any god, but would exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honour a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honour with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. King, it says, there's a subtitle in these verses. Uh, if you read it in your own Bible, you'll probably see the same. It says the king who exalts himself. Again, that selfish desire to want to uh, worship him, him being the, the beast, the devil, wanting to be uh, the position that Christ is in, but using it to control and subdue and take over uh, the people and the world. The false religion will in fact rejoice and indulge in great abominations and immorality. Great abominations and immorality. Uh, we do see this today. We've seen, we see terrible things on the news, even more recently, of terrible acts against children uh, in, in recent times. And that, that is incredibly heartbreaking to watch. It's incredibly heartbreaking to hear. This will be worse than that. There'll be a validation of that kind of behavior. Like that, that's those sort of things that we see in little glimpses today will, cut, will be almost the norm. Because it will be about self. It will be about self-determining and selfishness and about what I can get out of this. What power can I derive from this beast, the worship of this uh, beast? It is like the woman is addicted to them, as we see in the verses. Only what makes it worse is that the, she is also selling that addiction to the rest of the world. So she herself is, is kind of like the, the drug dealer here. She is the drug dealer selling uh, the drugs, but she's also so hooked on the beast's power that she just craves it and then wants everyone else to crave it. So she does everything she want, needs to do to get people to believe that she is the right person uh, to follow, as it were, in terms of a false religion. 
And it says in our verses, to this end she will drink the blood of the saints throughout their martyrdom, throughout their whole, the whole of the time uh, of the tribulation and beyond until Christ returns and stops that from happening. You see, what we might be witnessing before and up until now is an apparent slow compromise of the gospel when we talk about false religion, a compromise of the faith. And actually, many don't see now that when we think it's okay here and there to not be so precise and careful with Scripture, to, to let us sit in a shallow faith and knowledge of the word, it will eventually lead to people being led astray. It is not okay for us to sit in a kind of, uh, in an infant state with Christ. In terms of the word, it is not okay. Uh, we need to carry on learning. I'm greatly encouraged by the feedback about the Bible study because I think, wow, we can go further. We can keep learning. We can keep maturing in Christ. Not that we have great brains and we're really clever at deciphering the Bible or whatever you want to call it, but actually because we're learning and maturing, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. If we need to change, we need to change. If we need to step it up, we need to step it up. But if we feel we're, we're kind of sitting in the same place, church, be free to say something. Because my job here is to lead people in study of the word. If that isn't effective, just from my point of view, not anything to do with the word itself, please speak to me. I appreciate all the feedback. It's incredibly helpful to know and test the depth of how far you're going, how far you've got into the word, so we can all move together as a church. That's really important as we study the word together. I think I've said this before, but I've seen many, <clears throat> many home building programs. Uh, that's on TV. You might, uh, the, the names of them are the Grand Design and all sorts of these TV shows. I absolutely love them. Um, many people probably find them incredibly boring. Um, but I, I, I just I love the engineering of it all. I, I love looking at it and watching uh, them build these these homes. I love the way they have to come up with ways to make something on paper a reality. Some uh, architect sits there drawing out a quick sketch. And he says, this is what we'll do. And suddenly it appears by the end of the, the time. And it, just that sense of satisfaction, I suppose. But but one thing that is common in these programs and when these people build their homes is this principle of absolute precision absolute precise work in building the first blocks or the bricks or the slabs whatever they use on top of the the, the the foundations and i've seen this many times on this program what they what happens is that they set all the, the foundations out right and they start building the walls of the house and if they if they're one millimeter out by the time they get from one foundation to the next they could be like 12 inches out by the time they get to the next one and then they have to come up with a way of either knocking the whole thing down and starting again, or, or kind of like, well, we just fix that with a, like a, make the wall come in a bit and go out a bit. And it happens quite a lot. But there's a principle here about precision. If, we, if we're not precise about sticking to the word, if we start to wander a little bit outside, we need, just need to be aware that by the time we get to the end, we might be so far away from the gospel that it's not a gospel anymore that what we believe in is not the thing we should have been reading. If they don't keep in these, as I say, in these programs to these absolute precise building measurements from one foundation pillar to the next, even a millimeter out there, 
totally out of the way by the time they get to the next one. And so with the Christian faith, once you start to build in unsafe and just about do compromises, by the time we get to Jesus, we're way out from where the word actually started and where it is. We need to be on guard. Come to them verses in a minute. One line will tell you this in a moment. When we see false teachers now deviating from the word to make themselves the centre of attention, coming up with their own schemes, man-centred theologies, this is nothing compared to the world religion that will be centred around one man, Antichrist. But these false teachers, these false teachings that we're seeing today, are laying the groundwork for this time in Revelation. They're contributing to the enemy's work. So we, we need to have a mind of wisdom. In these next verses, we are called to have a mind with wisdom. That we must know the history, we must know the Bible, and most assuredly, we must know God. So that we can discern these events with wisdom. Revelation 17, our next section. Excuse me. Um, Revelation 17, verses 9 to 14. This calls... For a mind with wisdom. Now either, just, just stop there, either this is just generally calling a mind for wisdom, or a mind for wisdom for what we're about to read, because what we're about to read is kind of a little bit crazy, okay, so just need to just read this carefully, a mind with wisdom, okay, so it says the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits, there are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has... Oh, no, let me go back, sorry. Uh, the, let me read that bit in particular, because it's really important. The other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose, and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them, because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called chosen and faithful followers. So you bet your life you need a mind of wisdom here to understand this. What is this about? What, what, is, what is John seeing right here? So first of all, we need to remember that what we learned already in chapters 12 and 13 that the dragon was Satan and the beast was the Antichrist. The dragon had ten horns, with ten heads with crowns, and this indicated Satan was in control of the entire world, all its kingdoms and all its rulers. But the beast had ten horns with ten crowns, but only seven heads with blasphemous names, and one of those seven heads was killed and then resurrected. And now we get to the rest of this story. Okay, so this is what this part is talking about. Uh, the heads are mountains, which is in itself a symbol of world rulers. So it's a representation of the rulers around the world. And the angel is distinguishing these seven kings from the seven leaders who rule under the Antichrist. It then says that the harlot will sit on these seven kings. So just like she sat on the water, the water represents the people. She will sit on the kings and she will influence them. They will worship her because she will give them power she will give them uh, a sense of self uh, entitlement and all sorts of self-worship that they're 
amazing and great, and here's all the power you can have, you can ever wish for. You remember when Jesus was uh, in the wilderness, one thing that he was offered was power. One thing he was offered on earth was power. Not dissimilar here. What she's offering people here to much, probably more of extreme sense, because it's to people, not necessarily, not to Jesus, is this sense of, of, of power we can have in ourselves, that we're, we, can, we, can rule, we can rule like gods. That's really what the message is here. We can rule like gods. Why would we need God at all? This is the message being sent out. So the harlot will sit on these seven kings, ruling her ruling before the Antichrist comes to power. And these kings will rule one after the other, as it says. And it says in the verses, there are five of these seven have fallen. And so will not themselves rule at the end. They, will, they won't. There'll be an end to this rule. It appears these seven heads on the beast are different kings than those who rule under the Antichrist in tribulation. But in verse 10, we find that the beast himself is on one of the seven heads. Just in case you weren't confused already, uh, he is on one of these seven heads. This would suggest that he is a successor to all the other kings that have come before. So ultimately, what we, a simple way to kind of understand this is that what's ultimately going to happen, no matter who is uh, in charge, at the end, the beast will be the one who will try to take the power. It makes sense the kings are contributing, building up to, laying the foundation for the beast to come and take the power that he wants. Okay, so it's all going to be for him. Ultimately, not for them. He doesn't care what happens to them. Ultimately, he wants it for himself. That is what the beast will do. But then not only that, it says, but the beast is both the seventh and the eighth, it says in our verses. What does that mean? Why is he both? And this is because what John says, he says this here, uh, Revelation 17, verse 11, in, in the verse we've just read, but 11 says, the beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. This is a reference to the death of the beast as the seventh and then becomes the eighth when he comes back to life. Well, I wonder who did that, who died and rose again? Who's trying to trick people? Who's trying to fool people into thinking that he is the one who is all-powerful? He will die and come back to life. The last king, he will ultimately rule. That's his purpose in all of this. The thinking behind these five kings, as we've read, is that some people think there's probably five kings that have already passed in history. And by John's day, when we're reading this, the moment at the time he actually wrote it, five kings and kingdoms had already ruled Babylon and Jerusalem during the age of the Gentiles. People like Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, uh, Alexander's, Alexander's um, and, then, and then a couple of others. Not that they're relevant to this. Some people think there is a five kingdoms that have come two kings, sorry, not kingdoms, but two kings to come next. So five have gone, he says, two are coming. However, that's not the important bit, just so we're clear. The next head to conquer both will be the Antichrist during a tribulation, and the Antichrist will be the last world leader to gain control over both places. 
So the seven heads are those kings who lead Satan's kingdom, spiritual Babylon. So he's now he wants to take over and, and completely want take their worship. He wants everything from them. And everything they do has got to be to his benefit. But what they don't particularly realize, and the beast doesn't even realize, is that he is serving in the plan of the Lord. Get this. Let's look at this. Revelation 17, verses 15 to 18. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They'll bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. We won't go to that one. So 16 and 17, in verse 16 and 17, we're told that the Antichrist and the world rulers under him come to hate the harlot. So now where we're at is mid-tribulation. We're in the middle. After 3.5 years, we're now in the middle. This is describing the middle part of, of tribulation. When Satan indwells in the Antichrist. That's what we looked at last week. Okay, so Satan is now indwelling in Antichrist at this point, And he is a man and he's... Everyone loves him. He's done this amazing sort of miracle where he's come back from an injury. And everyone's, wow, he, he's a miracle worker. He has healed himself from what is going to kill him. He directs all that worship uh, and wants all that worship to him. He puts an end to any form of worship and religious practice by destroying all religious institutions, temples, churches, mosques and other places of worship so you see by the time we, we, we read that he actually gets really angry when he's expelled from heaven we read that he is incredibly enraged that's an understatement but he is enraged at god for not being able to come back into heaven we saw that in job he can traverse he was allowed to go back and forth between heaven to petition god and at this stage god says no more you're now down on the earth so this is, this is at the, 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 the extreme end of his rage. Now he wants any worship to be just for him. It says when they're burned with fire, and it says in the verses, this is a depiction of what we see when they, we read about burning her with fire. In the same way, her nakedness and desolation is a stripping of wealth from religious institutions. It's, it's, it, again, pictures these are imagery of what will happen on the ground as it were but what the kings as we read will think is their idea and that they'll think they're really great because they're really they think they're beating god will actually be what we read is that god is putting it in their hearts so that his purpose will be accomplished remember these places of worship as I read, churches as well are places of false worship. It's not about the church that um, lets Jesus in, that is absolutely devoted to him, that is, that is going to stick with him no matter what. This is the churches that are false under false worship of this beast. 
we read that they will have become people who are acting out their sinful desires and worship of self. But what is not easy to see is that Satan, in his unsatiable desire to want the worship all for himself, in removing every single building and every single place of worship, in making that everyone has to worship him alone, no other form of worship will do, Satan has carried out much of the work that God was always going to do. Remember, this is about wiping clean and starting again. That when the new time comes, there'll be a new place, a new earth, no more pain, no more tears. In his absolute rage, he has done the work that God was going to do and is done. And he's done it through him. That's why we read in these verses that he has put it in their hearts, it says, to accomplish his purpose. All that is left by the end of this chapter is one man, Antichrist. And when he is destroyed, then all idolatry will come to an end. Just, just think about that amazing plan. But Satan thinks that if he's so powerful and so enraged, if they all just worship me alone, I don't allow any, anyone to worship anything else. That means I'll have them and I'll win. God goes, there's no way you can beat me. God says, there's no way you're going to win. I've planned this from the beginning. You're going to lose. God allows Satan to get so obsessed about worship of himself that in removing other forms of worship, Satan has done that work. This chapter helps us to understand a couple of things. And I think I'm just going to go into this as we sort of move to the end here. Uh, but I think it helps us to understand a couple of things about the power of God's authority and the architecture of his consistent plan. We find in this chapter that things get bad before they get better. I mean, they get bad. Really, really bad. Can't dress this up. But why is that? Why does it have to get so bad? God's plan being so uniquely perfect, not only has the purposes of God at the heart of it, but even despite man's attempts to frustrate and stop God, it still happens and will happen. More so, God doesn't merely take into account the variety of ways that man uh, might pick to try and frustrate him. But at times, God's plan involves the very futile actions of man to actually serve God in his purpose. There's no way out of God's plan. This is what this is saying. It, there's, there's no way out. It doesn't matter how great you think you are. It doesn't matter how clever you think you are. There's no way out. God's plan will be executed and carried out to the end. That's a hallelujah moment. That's amazing. No matter how clever the cleverest person thinks they are, they're not getting out of this. The only way to get out of this suffering is to believe in Jesus. The only way to get out of this is to believe in Jesus. Not by man's schemes or man's ideas, but to believe in Jesus. In our study, we've been looking at Exodus. And the one example of futile actions being used to serve purposes, the purposes of God, is Pharaoh. What an example of a man that however much he tried, what he actually did was serve the purposes of God's plan to bring his people out of free, out of slavery into freedom. 
God knew from day one exactly how Pharaoh would react. He told Moses this. He said to Moses, this is what he's going to do. I know him. I know every single person on the planet. I know exactly what they're going to do. I know every characteristic about them. But God not only knew his character, but also in knowing the actions he would take, put Pharaoh's own actions in the plan to serve his plan. This blows your mind. Pharaoh was trying to be evil, and he was evil. But God used it for good. I've got to say, though, the best verses that represent this aspect of God and his ability to know all things and all actions to serve his purpose, I think can be seen with Joseph, uh, as we just flicked on earlier. But it says here in nine, uh, Genesis 15, 19 to 20, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended harm to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It doesn't matter what those brothers try to do to him. Those actions were carried out and, and were part of God's plan, Be not because God used evil ways, because he knows what man will do. He knows the depth of evil and sin of us all. And he knows every possibility, every angle, every road we could take. We also see that God thwarts, as it says, the plans of men by allowing them to carry them into a futile end. Psalm 33, verses 10 to 11. The Lord foils the plans of the nation. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. There is, there is no changing this plan. There, there is no altering this plan. This will come. So on one hand, we have a God that uses the actions of people even in their evil actions, but for good, to serve his plan and so frustrate even us who try to do something else, who try to go against him. And on the other hand, when those actions won't serve God's plan, they will just end in futility. What about the Tower of Babel? How did that end? They must have been so frustrated. How much time did they take to build that tower? And for God to go, nah, that's not going to honour me. Made them confused, couldn't speak the same language anymore. Certain times when, when it's not going to serve his plan, God says, I'm, just gonna, I'm actually just going to frustrate you, because you and you're going to go around in circles until you accept me as your Lord and Saviour. And then you can get a way out of this nonsense of going round and round the merry-go-round. Why would God subject us to this futility? Romans 8, 18 to 21. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Why? Why did he do that? in hope that the creation itself will be liberated, that it will see how futile it is to keep going round and round and round and not achieving anything, that they'll be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. 
not just to annoy you, not just to frustrate you, to show how ridiculous it is. Why do you want to do that when you can have freedom and, uh, and be clothed in righteousness? Which gift are you going to choose? I'm dumbfounded by anyone who chooses decay. I, I don't want to decay. I, I want to live with Jesus in heaven. I want to just be a new body, as he promises, a new being, a new person who's totally devoted to him without sin because of Jesus. God subjected creation to frustration in the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage. For people who want to continue to carry out plans and actions that do not align with God's plan, will and purpose for their lives and his kingdom, they will be frustrated. Christians, this goes for us as, as well. We're not perfect, are we? That's why we need Jesus. That's why we came to the conclusion in our hearts and our minds, spoken through our mouths, we need Jesus. Because this guy's a mess. But it won't be an endless frustration. The frustration that people will experience will be to show that the way out of this seemingly endless cycle of scheming will be to compare the decay of the world with the everlasting life in Jesus. It is two utter extremes. That is on purpose. Here is a terrible, decaying, horrible, terrible, sinful mess. And yet, you and me, this terrible, sinful mess, can be taken into glory, into the kingdom of God. That's, that's not right, is it? Why are we allowed to go over? Why are we allowed to go up there? That, we're a mess. But it's a promise. The Bible says it's there, so you come to me. And the gift is free, by the way. When we first saw the devil thrown to earth and permanently expelled from entering heaven, that was the beginning of the most frustrated and anger. And angry he will ever be. Yet even with everything he does and will do, nothing will change the plans of the Lord that stand strong. So this chapter is most certainly not about having a positive mental attitude in hard times. The Bible is a reality about the hard times. But the hard times themselves are just as much a reflection of God's continuing plan being worked out and worked through despite those times. You see, when we see this and he ultimately the actions of the devil are being used to, be, to make good of God's plan, when we think of our circumstances, think, wow, there's, there's actually something, God is doing something here. Even in these terrible moments in our lives, God's doing something. I wonder if we tend to think that if, if a bad time happens, God's kind of stepped back a little bit and said, no, 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 I'm not involved in that. No, no, you'll, one day I'll, I'll, I'll do something, but you know, only when you feel good. In those bad times, God is there doing something. He is building towards his plan. We don't worship God because we just want to feel great, feel good. We worship because he's everything. He has to be everything to us. 
Things can only get better, not because we need this world to get better. Even in scripture, it says the world will do what it always has done. It will continue to fall into decay. And it will continually be subjected to its own frustrations. But they will get better. Because whatever happens to those that trust and believe in Jesus will end up in that better place. And that's not to go, no, 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 no. Losers, we're winners. Let's go, but we've had a glimpse of the Bible, of, of the kingdom that's waiting for us. Why don't you come with us? Come believe in Jesus. It's free. We want, <clears throat> excuse me, we want people to trust in Jesus, not to change the world to make it a better place, because that's not what the Bible says. It will decay further. <coughs> Excuse me. Because even when we look at Jesus, when he served the poor, it wasn't just so he would feed them. It wasn't just so they would fill their bellies and feel good about themselves. Oh, we've had a nice meal. I'm okay now. But he wanted to show them a glimpse and a piece of the kingdom that is to come. In such an amazing, gracious way as well, by the way. He didn't need to do that, but he did. John 6, uh, verses 26 to 33. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, uh, for on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus asked, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Sorry, is that complicated theology? I don't think it is, is it? How do I do the work of God? Believe in the one he sent. Jesus Christ. It's free. Sorry. It's so simple. And it is, it is, there is an aspect to this where you become a Christian. You go, this is simple, isn't it? Actually, I just need to believe in Jesus. I need to know that I need to repent. And I have eternal life in him forevermore. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? <laughs> what will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread and, uh, from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It is not about now, it is about the kingdom. Let me finish with this. The Bible isn't a set of good moral standards to live by. For who is worthy of such perfection? If you could live to those moral standards, what's the point of Jesus? We can't do that. We can't live to the law because... We're useless at it. We are sinful. Only Jesus can do that. It's not about improving your lifestyle or getting rich quick. To trust in Jesus means you can change your life today and forevermore. It's literally a choice of life over death and heaven over hell.
The choice could not be starker. And because I haven't done it in a long time, I'm going to leave you with a verse, uh, sorry, a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, yay, that's what we do here, right? It's about time. We've been missing the Charles Spurgeon quote. This is, this is hard, though. This is a tough, tough quote. If Christ is not all to you, he is nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part saviour of men. Do you know what that means? He, it's not the Bible. This is what Spurgeon's saying, but it's biblical. He's not something added on the side. If he be something, he must be everything. And if he be not everything, he is nothing to you. It's a stark choice. We choose Jesus or we choose decay. We started this in Revelation 17, but I think we need, I needed to hear this message, even just for me, even if you didn't need to hear it today. But I think definitely we need to know this, that Jesus is not a happy add-on. It's not an accessory to our lives. He is everything or he is nothing. And that must be the gospel we must follow and not deviate into false religion. We must be very careful. And I encourage you to keep studying and stay true to the word. And guess what? Even when you don't, even when you make mistakes, you're forgiven when you see it and you go, Lord, I, I didn't see that. I thought it was this. It wasn't. It was this. Forgive me. Jesus knows us inside and out. Is why he can use us in our actions, in what we do to serve his plan. It is a great Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let us pray and then we'll worship uh, together one last time. Lord, we just want to thank you that you... You have to mean everything to us. Uh, and Lord, I, I just want to just want to think in now. This is not about being uh, falsely religious in in that we become monks or something. This is this is not about living a an appearance of a godly life in that sense. It's not it's not to just look godly. For many people did that in Jesus' time, uh, and they were rebuked for doing that. But Lord, you're speaking to the heart of us. Where is our heart? Is it all for Jesus? Or is it frivolous? Is our relationship all for you in that every day we are trying to become more like the people you want us to be in you and because of you? Or are we happy sitting as an infant playing with some toys on the floor that make some noises and keeps us attracted for a little while? Lord, help us through your Holy Spirit to drive our attention towards being more about you, keeping you in our minds, in our hearts, as we focus in the distractions, in the things that we do day-to-day -day life, that, Lord, I know that you don't, you know, are not bad. We, we can go to work, we can do, live our lives, but, Lord, where does all that come from? I think that's what you're telling us here. Where does it all come from? This, the song we sang was, this is my desire to honour you. Without sin, before original sin, our desire was to honour you. Then sin came, 
and then we wanted to honour ourselves. Jesus came and Jesus said, if you believe and trust in me, when the time comes, you will grow in that time, but when the time comes, you will be in that state of no more sin, no more pain, no more tears, and your desire will be to worship him. Well, thank you for that. We're not going to do, be able to do anything about that other than say, Lord, I, I want that to happen to me. So, Lord, we pray for the Holy Spirit that you will keep teaching us how to keep focusing ever more so on your salvation, on your grace, on your mercy, on your teaching of your word, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who teaches about Jesus. Lord, give us uh, the strength to endure the patience of the fruit of the Spirit to bear with this time. Lord, help us to grow more in your way. Lord, thank you. So I lift this message to you, Lord, and Lord, I just pray that it, it does honour you, not man, that it praises your name and not man's name, that it is all about you, it's because of you, and only because of you that I can even stand here and say these words. What a gift indeed to be able to speak the words of the Bible and say, Lord, you are our saviour. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. We worship you in your holy, holy name. Amen.